little fired up about the Word of God, about this Word, this living Word, this document that's not just a book or history. It's living. It has power. It's authoritative, and it can change our lives. It can come in, and it can clean things out. It can come in, and it can cut to the heart, but it can come in, and it can encourage us no matter where we're at. You know, the Word of God has this power in it that knows exactly what you're facing, and it can speak exactly into that moment. It can come in and say, you know that issue you're facing in school right now? There's something in this word that can bring life to that situation. You know, those relationships that you may be in at the moment, or there may be a struggle in your life, might be finances, it might be something else, the word of God can speak directly into it. This word has power. And so I want to pick up on a few things this morning, but we're going to go through the story of Luke 7 and the faith of the centurion. All right, so if you've got a Bible... Feel free to turn there or on your phone, uh, and if you don't, that's all good. It's going to come up on the screen as well, and we're going to go through this passage, so let's, let's do that. Luke 7, chapter 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built a synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself and a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And tell that one, come, and he comes. And I say to the servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house, and they found the servant well. Found him well. You know, many of us probably heard this passage before, or it's not a new story to some of us. Um, If you've never heard this story, one of the things they talk about is this faith of the centurion. He was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew, but he had this incredible faith, or as Jesus describes it, amazing faith. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a big part of this that I want to explore is that, you know, his faith was revealed by his words. He said, just say the word and this will happen because I know what this authority looks like. Just say the word. His faith was revealed by the words that he said. And so this morning, I want to uh, explore this theme of the words that we use and the things that we say. Um, and I'm kind of going to use an illustration because we are in the midst of a construction project. We've been doing a building project. So if you've been around in the church for a little bit, but if you haven't, that's all good. Just to fill you in, we're in the middle of construction. And you can see that by the mess at the back of the room and things that are still getting tidied up. But we've been going through a journey of expanding this room. And so to use that analogy, I want to just point out four things that are going on uh, in the life of this church through that construction journey or that building project, just to bring to life what's happening uh, in this story. And so the first part is, is that you've got to plan out a building project. It doesn't just take place day one. You've got to think about it. No one just goes and starts to knock down, well, some people do go and knock down walls, 
but you shouldn't just go and knock down a wall. You should actually plan it and think about it and consider what you're going to do. You've got to weigh up the cost, look at the resources, and look into how you're going to do it. That's how we did this here. We, we talked about the project with you guys. We uh, took up an offering. We, we collected the resources. We mapped out the plan. We, we drew up uh, some schematics to figure out what we were going to do. And that's the first part of my message this morning in this just say the words, is that there's got to be some planning and some thinking. Jesus entered Capernaum. He entered, where did he enter from? He had come from just preaching the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. He had been in a grassy place with all these people listening, all these people following him, and he came from that into the city. He entered into Capernaum. So he left where he was, and he went into this new place. It's the start of the story. He's going into this place. And I think about this, and I think this is the first part often of our lives. You know, often that's the first part of our life. If you're a young person here listening to this message uh, in your teenage years or your young adult years, often this can be the first part of our life. We're thinking about our life ahead. Our life's fully kind of ahead of us. And we're thinking, what are we going to do with my life? What am I going to put my time into? How am I going to live my life? What kind of decisions am I going to make during this lifetime? And I want to touch on one thing this text talks about friends and friendship. Notice that he sent the elders, but he also sent some friends. He sent two different types of people. And at that time, the elders of the Jews, they were the leaders of the synagogue, and they made a lot of decisions at that time around things. And so he sent them as a delegation to Jesus to ask him to help. But then he backtracks, or he sends another delegation of friendship. And if you look at the words between what the elders say and what the friends say, there's some fascinating things that just stand out about how they speak of the centurion. So I'm going to put these words up on the screen, and they're going to come up on the next slide. Uh, And if we look at these words, this is how the Jewish elders talk about the centurion. He is worthy of having, he's worthy of having you do this. But the friends go and say to him, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. The Jewish elders say, you do this for him. You need to do this for him. But the friends Sorry, that should say friends and not Jewish elders, just so that's confusing. All right, that should say friends. Just, yeah, imagine that. Use your imagination. The friends say, do not trouble yourself. Don't trouble yourself. Don't trouble yourself to come and do this. The Jewish elders say he loves our people, and all his friends are asking is that his servant is to be healed. The Jewish elders say he built our synagogue, and we know how God builds things just by speaking his word. He spoke his word, and the world was created. He spoke his word, and creation came into being. He speaks words, and things are created. So these guys give this image of the centurion, that this is who he is. You know, he's worthy of all these things. They're worried about the image, whereas the friends are actually just representing him truthfully. And I think this brings us to like a really important point in our world, is what kind of things do your friends say about you? <laughs> what kind of things do they say about you? Are they truthful? Do they speak accurately of you, or is there an image they're projecting? On the flip side, how do you represent people? How do you represent Christ? How do I represent Christ? Do we muddy the statements of things we hear? When someone says something to us, do we interpret it differently (laughs) and paraphrase them and speak ill of them, or do we accurately represent the things we've been told? I think there's an application in this. There's people trying to prop up an image of something, and there's others representing something accurately. And I think that speaks into our worlds. We need to be reliable friends, and we need to speak well of people. So Luke is writing to this Gentile audience and his listeners, 
they're hearing about a Gentile who has great faith. If you were a new convert to Christ in that first century, you would be massively encouraged. You know, it reminds also that the Jewish listeners that were listening to this, that their heritage and their lineage as Jews does not mean that they're saved, does not mean that they're granted salvation. In other words, you could say that just because you've grown up in church or you've got Christian parents, there's no guarantee that you are actually written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that your life is guaranteed in Christ. This is a decision between you and Christ. Remember, Christianity proclaims that Jesus is the only way to God. There's no other way there. Good works don't get you there. Religious religious observance doesn't get you there. Ticking all the protocol boxes does not get you there. Only faith in Christ. We don't get there on the merit of ourselves or on our parents' faith. Our names have to be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The Bible teaches, confess your sins and turn to God. So if you're young this morning in this place, you know, don't let the best years of your life as a young person be wasted doing what others think is cool or trying to keep up the image. Give your whole heart to him and watch him radically change your world and give you a purpose and a hope for living for. That's what the centurion found. He found a hope that was more than just what people were doing around him. Cool. So the second part of building is the demolition phase. <laughs> this is a great phase. And on Monday morning, uh, <clears throat> I, was, I tried to have a day of rest, but I knew they were doing demolition here in the church and knocking out the wall. And there was just this part of me that wanted to come in and smash something down. Hey, Tussie. So I, I did actually take about a couple hours on Monday morning and, you know, just slowly got up and... Um, <clears throat> not going to talk about housework. I did a lot of stuff, and then I came in, and I got stuck into some demolition. There was walls that needed to be moved out the way, and man, it was fun. We had hammers, and uh, Isaac, we got into it. Uh, We ripped out the jib, we ripped out the walls, and there was this demolition going on. And during that process, things got really, really, really messy. Demolition is messy. Things get awfully dusty and messy, and, and there's just fragments everywhere, stuff all over the ground. It's a messy situation. Things are crumbling around us. This part of the story, I feel, is an aspect of our life, because there's messy parts in life. Amen? Unless your life is perfect, there is messy. There is messy parts in life. Is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? Yes, there was good. God created it good. And then what happened? There was bad. Sin entered the world. The devil, he, there is this mess, this darkness, this awfulness. If you work in any human organization, you will find there is mess in your world. If you work with people, you will find there is mess in your world. If you work uh, in management or business, you will find there is mess in the world. If you, find, if you work in education, it's perfect. No, it's messy. <laughs> if you work in healthcare, it is messy. If you work in politics, it's pretty If there is mess in the world, amen, there's mess in our world. And the Bible talks about it. It doesn't skip around it. It talks about mess. I'm glad it talks about the mess because if it didn't, it wouldn't be truth. It wouldn't be real. It wouldn't be applicable. But there's mess in our worlds. There's mess in this world. The demolition stage reminds us the world is messy. But I just want to focus in on a moment of the servants who in the actual Greek doulos, it's actually a word called slave. This is a slave. The translations of the Bible kind of pretty it up a bit with the word servant, but at the end of the day, this is a slave. They have no rights. They have no status in that sense in their society. They're a slave. 
And I want to look at this person of the slave in the story because it's the slave that is healed. It's this person that's healed. And their status, man, slaves, well, they constituted about a third of the population. They were everywhere. Many of these slaves, um, some of them lived in wealthier homes and they had specialized roles occasionally. You know, perhaps the slave of the centurion was like that. He had a specialized role. But most slaves, it was degrading work. It was difficult work. It was lowly work. Many children were slaves, or they were sold as slaves, and a high number of them died. Half of the female imperial slaves at this time died at the age before 30. They didn't get past the age of 30. Slaves were considered property as a living tool. Animals and slaves, it was said at the time, had no purpose for their own lives. Imagine that, living in a culture where that's how you're treated. No purpose for your own life, but considered a slave. Slaves who had children were almost always separated, and often the cycle of slavery went down generation after generation after generation. You could be the third, fourth, fifth, eighth generation of a slave, and that's your position in life, slavery. But look closely at what's happening here. You know, at this time, they were considered intolerable slaves, and Jesus heals the slave. He heals the slave. What is he doing? You know, surely there were more valuable people to heal, more people of social standing, or they had more to offer the world. Maybe they could be uh, healed. But he comes in, and he heals those of a lower social class. He heals the lowest rank among them. He enters society at the perceived lowest point, or the least valued member. And Jesus still does this today. He still does this today. He's still interested in the lowliest. He's still interested in the ones that society have said, you know, this is their title, this is their role. This is where they are in our society. You know, we don't talk about um, <clears throat> status or classes, but we may in our mind start to actually consider people in certain categories. Jesus comes in and whatever those categories might be, and he starts at the bottom and he heals a slave. And he does it how today? He does it through you and me, through the church, through us, through Christians like you and me. The reality is we were all slaves to sin. <laughs> we're all slaves to sin. You know, we all alike have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen? All of us, we have all sinned. No matter our education or wealth or citizenship or religious upbringing, we are born into sin, 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 sin. The slave, if you think about it, he has no means of getting better. There's nothing financially that can make him well. There's no treatment available to the slave to get him better. Even with, even with all the seemingly right connections, he can't get better. He cannot improve his situation as a slave. Without an immediate and decisive intervention, this slave would have died. The story would have ended in death. Without an intervention, without a savior, we would all be destined for punishment and for the penalty of our sin. But Christ, but Jesus, but Jesus enters the story. Amen. Are we glad that he intervened on our behalf? We were sinners. We deserve the punishment, and he came, and he set us free, and he entered our slavery. He enters the story. He doesn't skip around it. He comes, and he dies in our place as a slave to sin, and we're set free. This story represents a bigger story, and that is that, you know, all of us deserve that punishment. All of us actually deserve that death, but Jesus comes in, and he starts at that lowest point, and he heals us, and he restores us. In demolition mode, things get messy. The world is messy. There's things around us that are messy, and we need to clear up the junk. We need to make some space under our feet, even just to see the floor. 
But guess what? When we do that, we realize the flaw. The foundation is that we were slaves, but we've been set free. God has entered the story, and we stand on that foundation. We stand on that firm security, not because of something you can do for God, not because of something that you achieve for Him, but because of what He's done through entering into the story of our slavery. I'm encouraged by that because I think, you know, each of us at times, we may slip back into a mindset of slavery. <laughs> we enter back into this thought of, oh, I just need to be a bit better this week. Have you ever had that thought? Oh, I'll just be a bit better this week, Jesus, for you and for your kingdom. And God quickly puts that story to bed and says, no, your slavery was dealt with. Your sin has been dealt with. Don't try and figure it out. Your sin has been dealt with. I've come and I've healed the slave. I've come and I've healed the slave to sin in our hearts. You know, that's exciting. And that's part of that demolition because that's still around us. We still see the messiness of that in our world. Amen. There's still that in our world. You still work with people that are messed up by sin. You still, we still interact with organizations and things that are, that are filled with sinful effects. We still have a time and space right here in this earth, in this city, in this community where things are messy with sin. That's why people need Jesus. That's why people need the gospel. That's why people need more than just food or uh, a better job or, you know, a better career or a nicer this and that. They need Jesus as the foundation because when that's the foundation and sin has been dealt with, everything from there starts building. The demolition work is done. Cool. Moving on to point number three. You tracking with me, church? You're good. Number three. So we've been building this project, and this week we came in and we built. And uh, and, and during this week, walls got put up, walls got moved back. Um, quick little story. On the other side of that wall was a kid's wall that was all decorative with all this amazing artwork, and we tried to salvage it. And and amazingly, uh, Zach and the team managed to move the whole wall back without destroying the other side. Uh, and so it was incredible work from the team just to move the wall back. Yeah, give them a clap, all the work they've been doing. It's awesome. So awesome. Like we took the collection on Sunday. Do you remember? We took the collection last Sunday and on Monday we built. And now by this time it's actually fully constructed. There's some of the finishing work to do, but it's been constructed. Just say the words, says the centurion. So this part of the story is construction. Things are being built. Walls are being put up. Stuff is happening. I think this is the part in our lives where there's a lot happening. Does anyone feel at times there's a lot happening in life? I think I'd, I identify personally with this part of the story. There's a lot happening. Things get busy, man. Life gets full. You know, just to give you an example, on Saturday mornings at soccer, we have to be in three places at once. That is physically impossible. I cannot be at one soccer field and then another soccer field and another. If I could duplicate myself, or, but we can't be. There's no physical way to do it. It's just a little example because there's things in life where you've got to be in so many places. How do you prioritize? How do you figure out a value system? What do you pour your life into? I think the scriptures speak into that for our lives today. How to build our lives, how to construct well. So I want to touch on three points on this one and spend a little bit of time here before we move on. One is we need to trust Jesus at his word. We need to trust him at his word. The servant, he is healed without even meeting Jesus. He's not even meeting Jesus. He doesn't even have FaceTime with him. He's healed from a distance. Have you thought about that? He doesn't even see him, and yet he's healed. There's no long prayer offered. There's no touch. There's no command. There's none of that. He's healed. Luke's gospel, you know, he's writing this, and he's focusing on what Jesus' instructions. He tells us the servant is made well, but there's nothing explicit to say 
Jesus said it would have been that way. In other words, Jesus, he doesn't actually, in Luke's gospel, he doesn't even say, the servant will be made well this time tomorrow. None of that. He just says, look at your faith. That's all he says. And then the end of the story says, by the way, the servant was made well. Like there's, there's, there's very little in this that talks about what actually Jesus said. And I think that's there to tell us Jesus' word is fully reliable. We can lean and trust into Jesus' word 100%. I think this is important for today because we live in a world uh, in a world where words are what? Words are, what would you describe them? Meaningless? <laughs> cheap? People talk about words being cheap. Words, oh, they don't really matter that much. Words come and words go. It's what you do that's important. And yeah, it is important what you do. But words, words have power. Words bring life and words bring death. Think about God's words. Let there be light. And there was light. His words constructed things. Words have meaning. We live in a culture surrounded where words don't mean that much. As believers, we have to change that narrative. We have to live in a way where our words mean something. Turn to the person next to you and say, let your words mean something. (laughs) Our words have to mean something. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. You know, there's tremendous power, peace, and presence of Jesus for us today if we become students of this word. I heard heard a, a line this week that said, what you soak yourself in will be what informs your world. If you soak yourself in Disney or in Netflix, or if you soak yourself in whatever you're hearing around you, you're going to be informed by those things. And before you know it, they're going to be informing the values you have around relationships, around sex, around uh, how you spend your time or your money. They're going to inform what you do because they're informing your world. You're soaking yourself in them. Can I encourage you? Soak yourself in this word. This is a better word. This is a truer word. This word soaks. And I'm talking to myself here as well. I'm preaching to myself, we need to soak ourselves in this word. We need to live in this word, be students of this word. Recently, we've been doing a Bible course here in partnership with Laidlaw Bible College, and it's been exciting just to sit back and discover more of what the word teaches. You know, those that have been on the course will testify, I believe, that this word in this course has opened their eyes to so much of how the scriptures are put together. 2 Timothy 3.14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have been convinced of. Because you know that those from who you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. They will make you wise. Build your life on his words. Study it. Get to know it. Remember the centurion's words? I'm not worthy, but just say the words. Just say the words. The number two here is we have a double standard. And I've touched on this a bit with our words. You know, there's a, um, the centurion's interesting because he understands a chain of command. He lives in a world of soldiers. The chain of command is Caesar. And then from Caesar, it's the governing ruler. And then from them, it's, uh, it's the next person under him. It's the elders. And then from the elders, it's there. And then and eventually, it's the servant. He's living in this world of a chain of command. His profession teaches him things about authority structures and how things work. His profession has things to teach him about it. Go and he goes. Comes and he comes. Do and he does. He's learned as a soldier the power of the word of command. You know, one of the major social evils of our day is a double standard of words. We say one thing, we do another. You know, Penny mentioned last week about corporate theft, time theft, and all the things that are theft and, and stolen. 
But I think about this soldier, you know, it took 15, probably 20 years for him to become a centurion. And normally centurions were harsh, they were bitter, they were mean, they were, they were, they were Romans, you know, they were tough and brutal. But here was a man that was an exception to the rule. He was not those things. You know, there's certain assumptions about centurions and their characters, and he doesn't fit this mold. He's out of the mold. And I like this. I like this guy. I like this centurion. I like the fact that he's actually different from what people appear to be. He's hardworking. He is successful, yet he's not completely out for his own gain. He's helping the Jews. He's building a synagogue. He's blessing the Jews. If you think about that for a second, he's blessing the Jews. Who's meant to be blessing the Gentiles? <laughs> you read the whole story of the Scriptures, it's the Jews who are meant to be blessing the Gentiles. And here's a Gentile blessing the Jews. This guy's doing it in reverse. This is rare stuff. This guy is an exception to the rule. You know, remember, Jesus entered the Roman world where there was, an, there was infant genocide. Babies were getting killed by the hands of Roman centurions. And where does Jesus die? On a cross. And who's looking at him? A Roman centurion. These guys are brutal. And in the middle of that story is a Roman centurion who's blessing the Jews, who's humbly seeking Jesus, who's believing him at his word. He's an exception to the rule. The culture of double standards in the Roman world were counted head on by the centurion's faith in God. He stood out. He didn't decide to just go along with culture. He stood out. He chose to stand in God. If you have faith in God, you know, what standards do you, do you and I carry with us? Are we keeping our word? Are we reliable? But more practically, you know, do we do what we say we're going to do? Do we turn up when we say we're going to turn up? Or do we bow to the double standards of our culture and just slip into the normal story? Oh, everyone does this. I'll just flow in what everyone else is doing. Oh, everyone turns up late. I'll just turn up late. Oh, everyone does You know, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He chose not to be like the other centurions. He stood up in his time. He stood up in his generation, and he decided to be someone that had faith in God. He stood out in the story. The last point in this is that the mission continues to the Gentiles. A lot of Bible scholars talk about the story as a prophetic picture of the church going to the Gentile world. Why is that? Because at that time, Jesus came to heal the Jews. He came as a sheep to the lost sheep of Israel. Remember those stories? Jesus said, I've only come to give the bread to the Jews. He came to do this, but he heals this Gentile and he doesn't see him. He does it from a distance. He does it through messengers. He heals the Gentiles through the messengers. And this is a prophetic picture of our mission to many that don't believe in God, to Gentiles in that sense, to those that don't know God. And that mission continues today. In any part of our world where the truth of the gospel is needed, where there's darkness in our world, people still need to hear the word of the Lord. Where there's corruption or decay and breakdown in families or organizations or cities, people of God's kingdom are called to shine, to be salt, to be light. Maybe it's in your school or university. Maybe where you see there's spiritual darkness at work. Just say the word. Speak the name of Jesus. Pray over it. Declare over it. Use your words to do battle in that sense. Declare the words of Jesus over it. Shout grace to your mountain. You know, the mission continues today. There's things that need healing. There's things that need the healing power of God. Satan hates this church. He hates what God's doing in this nation. He despises believers and the Scriptures. The Scriptures talk about him roaming like a lion, roaring around, seeking whom he may devour. But the Bible teaches us to say the words of God, to speak the words of God. 
And talking about mission, just getting really practical, you know, as soon as we finish off this renovation project and things are done, uh, we, we plan to do a, just a flyer drop into all the neighborhood just to let the community know of what God is doing here, you know, just in terms of updating everything and, and our refitting out this place and making it a venue to come together, not just for church, but the food bank and other community initiatives. Uh, when we do that, you're needed. <laughs> you're needed to drop these flyers off. You're needed to be part of that mission. You may think, I've never told anyone about Jesus in my life. That's not for me. Come and take a flyer and drop it in a letterbox. There you go. There's one step, a very simple practical step. But we all have a role to play in this mission to the Gentiles that continues. Awesome. My last point this morning, and we're getting there, is the finishing stages of a building project, the finishing touches. And we're not quite there yet, as you can tell. We've still got flooring to go down. We've still got painting to do. There's still some finishing touches uh, to go on. And I think sometimes this can be like, maybe it's like the later part of life. You know, you've seen things get built in life. Uh, perhaps you've grown up or your kids have grown up uh, and your kids are adults now. Maybe you're in your, you know, 50s, 60s, a later part of life. And you've had a significant season of life. And you say, well, how does this word apply to me? How does this affect my word? Just want to read this last part of that verse again in Luke. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm a man under authority and I'm my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, and they do it. When Jesus heard these words, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. When Jesus heard these words, one translation says he marveled. He marveled at these words. Just take a look at the word marveled for a second. It's going to come up uh, on the screen, thomazo, I think that's how you say it, at his faith, to wonder, to be utterly amazed, to marvel. It's the only time in recorded New Testament scriptures that Jesus marvels. All through scripture, they marveled at Jesus. He heals, he, he, he sets people free, he raises them to life, he calms the storm and they marvel. This is the one time in the whole of New Testament Jesus marvels at someone else. What does he marvel at? He marvels at their faith. He marvels at their belief. It's incredible when you think about the fact that this guy is recorded at having this kind of faith. It's shocking, actually, in all of Israel. If anyone should have had faith, it should have been possibly a Jew that knew the story, that knew about the Messiah, read the predictions, and knew Jesus was coming, but it's not. It's a Gentile believer who takes God at his word. And this happens all throughout Scripture. Remember Elisha and Elijah. Who do they heal? Not the Jew, but they heal a woman that's not in the Jewish tribe. Elijah is sent to the widow at Zarephath, and the son is healed. This happens before when Naaman, the Syrian, is healed of his leprosy. He's healed. He's not a Jew, but he's healed, and he's delivered, and he's set free. Jesus goes to these people. This is Jesus, the prophet of all prophets, coming and healing. This is a repeated pattern throughout Scripture of Jesus coming to heal the Gentiles. And he's putting a spotlight on Israel and saying, come on, this was your role. And I'm here to fulfill that role and show you the way. But here is also another point with this word marvel. We have a different concept of the word marvel. Does anyone want to guess what that concept might be with the word marvel? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the word marvel? I see some people nodding, maybe agreeing with me. Today we have a different use of the word marvel. It has to do with a movie series. 
in comics and the like. Today, Marvel as an organization has a $116 million net worth value. It's a huge industry. Yet in every Bible, in every Bible, in every part of the world, wherever this book is, if you go to any country and there's a Bible on the shelf or in a home or wherever it might be, the centurion's faith is recorded in that Bible. Every part of the world can hear about the centurion's faith and marvel, and that is a better marvel. I believe that's a way better marvel than the comics, and although I enjoy the movies. That is a better marvel to have. So here's the point. How will history remember your faith? How will they remember my faith? Will it be recorded in dollar signs? Like Marvel, $116 million. Or will people marvel at what you did in your faith in God? What an utterly amazing faith his friends had. Jesus said, what an amazing faith you have. You know, this servant, he was highly valued to his master. Let the master of all masters find your faith highly valuable. Highly valuable. So, just in closing, you know, what happened that day for the servant was life-changing. It changed his life. If you were the servant, you would have been stoked. Your life has completely been healed. You were about to die, and now you are healed. This story hinges on the fact that this person was healed. Absolutely life-changing. But had the centurion not have acted, a life-changing event may never have taken place. Had he not gone about and done this movement of faith, nothing may have happened. Don't underestimate the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your daily life to act in faith. And I just encourage you, you know, for all of us, maybe tomorrow morning or maybe this week, you're driving somewhere, you're having a conversation with a friend or a neighbor, someone at your work maybe, and there's a prompting of the Holy Spirit in faith to say something, to say the words. It may be the very act that brings them to life. It may be the one thing that's keeping them from death's door. You never know what people are going through. You never know what might be going on in their mind. You never know what situation they're facing. And secondly, this guy was healed. We have to take stock of what God has done and restored in our lives. If you're in the later part of life, remember what God has done. Write it down. Make it an art piece. Take a picture of before and after. Consider what God has done. Remember his faithfulness. Remember his healings. This story would have flopped had he not been healed. But he was healed, and it's recorded, and we know about it, and it's history, but it's living history because he's always healing. Remember the things God has done. Call them to account. Give thanks to God. Awesome. Well, my time is out. I'm just going to get um, Ben, if you're here, just get you to come up and play in the background. And just as he comes up, if you're here this morning and you're not, maybe you're not part of Church Unlimited or you've never been part of this church or maybe the building project thing is a little bit foreign to you um, and you haven't been part of that story, I'm just going to park that illustration there. And I just want to speak about one other thing. This whole passage begins with these words. Now, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. He entered. One scripture says he returned. One translation, he returned. The news of him had spread and he returned. The centurion had heard of Jesus. He would have heard the stories. He would have heard the miracles. He would have heard the good news. And he believed in Jesus. You may be in here in church this morning because of news. Maybe someone told you about this church. Maybe someone 
uh, told you about a story. Maybe you got a food parcel. Maybe you just read it online. I don't know. Maybe someone invited you along. But somehow you heard about this place. You're not here by accident. Just like the centurion heard the news and came to Jesus, you've heard something and you're in this church. Can I encourage you, don't stop there. Don't stop at just the informative. Don't stop at just the news. Come and seek Jesus. There is still good news today. Jesus is returning. He entered Capernaum and he returned. Just as Christ came into this world, he's returning to this earth. The news spread and Jesus returns. 2 Corinthians 13.5, my last scripture, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So I just want to close with that. If you're living as a believer today, are you living in Christ? Not just following Him. We need to follow Him. But are you in Him? Is everything you do, is He in you? If there's a failure in this test, there's no condemnation here. But there's an invitation to say, don't be separated from God forever. Come to Him. Don't leave it to chance. He enters and He does return. And when He returns, you want to know that you're on the right side of history. You're on the right place. Your name has been written in the book of life. And you're ready to meet Him. Why don't we stand and pray?